whenever it's their judgment to add medication, what are the parents going to do? More is better. better. More is better. You always have those cases you will never forget. They'll dig up my cortex a thousand years from now and it'll still be imprinted on me. <laughs> the nurses are always saying, swallow, swallow, swallow. <laughs> the logic of that doesn't make sense to me, Doctor. I know a lot of you are not going to believe this because you've been using this crap for like 30, 30 years. If you think that, you know what we then call you? The defendant doctor. <laughs> Would any of us allow anybody to put down an injury to I would shoot you with a gun. You can only do this to dogs and to medical students. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he's now half a man. Say what? Rick, it's a technical doctor thing. We'll help you with it later. Hello, welcome. Rick B. Carter. Greg Henry. Mel Herbert. Hello. We are in room 833 of the Maui Marriott. Uh, where we happen to be doing one of those fabulous emergency medical abstracts courses with 130 of your friends. They are our friends, Rick. They'll come and hear us no matter where we are. They're great people. What's more important is a lot of them take risk management monthly. So uh, we appreciate uh, the opportunity to do this here. Our wives are down by the pool muttering about the fact that we're up here in the room sequestering ourselves. But the fact is, it's, it's an opportunity because you're here and you don't, you don't have to fly you in from Ann Arbor and it's a beautiful day out there. Yeah. and So it's all good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Rick, if I would complain about in the middle of uh, March being in, Ma- in Maui, Hawaii, there's something seriously wrong. <laughs> you, Go ahead. Well, you know, you, you could have been coming um, jaded to the experience. I mean, you're here all the time. Yes. You're here for the Stanford course coming up along yes, with I am. Dr. Mallon. And, uh, are you going to the Stanford course? No, I do that every few years. I haven't done it for a few years. We discovered that we had some conspicuous absence. We've done orthopedics. We've done peds. We've done wounds. We've done infectious diseases. We've done back pain and chest pain and all that stuff. But there's a big hole that we left out. A gap. Yes, a gap. A gap. Go ahead. This will be considered abdominal pain. So we're not going to go through every abdominal pain disorder, obviously. That would just be deadly boring. But what I thought we would do is we would list about 14, 15, 16 kinds of traps that people can get into in the management and assessment of abdominal pain. I don't think we could do a better topic, Rick. So we're going to rotate through these. Some of these topics are clearly risk management issues, and some of them are little bonus topics that got nothing to do with risk management. Well, while here, we'll throw it in anyway. Then we have a few letters from our eight listeners. And <laughs> it's up to eight. That's, that's right. Good. That's right. And we have an article I want to go through, which I think is an extraordinarily important article. And we may have time for a case or two. We depending. will indeed, sir. We okay, indeed. so let's get started. Number one, Viscous lidocaine is an effective and safe medication for children with painful oral ulcers. Think again. We actually have an article, Cardiopulmonary Arrests Due to Misuse of Viscous Lidocaine. This came out of the Archives of Otolaryngology, November 1985. And in this discussion, this is Loyola University. And they looked at a child who died, 30-month-old child, not a teeny one, who died with apnea and seizures after repeated doses of viscous lidocaine were placed on the tongue to relieve the pain of candidiasis. 
What the authors point out in this, and they do review the literature, that serum lidocaine levels, and this child at the time of death had a 3.2 milligrams per liter level seven hours after the death, can have a central nervous system effect. You absorb just fine through the tongue and the oral mucosa. We always forget that you can hydrate people, you can give medicine, you can do anything through the oral mucosa. Maybe it's inflamed, and maybe you can even absorb better. You well, know, they put these things on canker sores and those kinds of other jobbers. You got to be really, really careful. I would never prescribe this stuff. Now, I don't want to set a standard of care, of course. Of course. But there's enough of these cases where these kids seize or have some kind of swallowing. You've kind of numbed up their throats and now they're aspirating kind of thing. Well, I think that we have to look at this case and think down the road. This is a medical legal risk management program. So let's look down the road at some of those things. Now you've got a parent who really doesn't know how much is too much. It's very easy when we say, here's a bottle of amoxicillin, you get a teaspoon three times a day. Pretty simple, they can follow that one. Whenever it's their judgment to add medication, what are the parents going to do? More More is better. better. More is better. And now the child's fussy and they add some more. And now they're a little fussier, they add some more. And so I think what we have to remember is we've got a drug in a child. And the body, the mass ratio on a child is very small. Head's big, the body's small. And what's going to happen is you absorb all that lidocaine. And just understand this is like any other cane derivative. It can have central nervous system effects. It's associated with seizures. You know, I think real hard before I sent that stuff home with a child. Yes, I think that that is the take-home message. You know, I don't know how much this is done anymore because this is an old paper. This is like 20, yes, is. 20 years old and it used to be done more frequently. I think we got the message. This is not the right thing. Xylocaine viscous is still around. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, I would use it for myself. For my that's like putting that stuff in your eye, the uh, opthetic for the exactly. uh, <laughs> no, I do use that. Actually. And everybody does that. <laughs> Every doctor in his right mind would take this idea that, oh, this is bad. You're going to get a boulder in your eye and you might not know it. Yeah, you know? yeah, it's uh, all yeah, sure, sure. Right. But the next one is more current. Yep. So this is benzocaine is a safe alternative to lidocaine for topical anesthesia of the RFX. That's sort of the myth. And the answer is, hold on a minute, Sparky. We've got a paper here from March 2009. So Ricky found a very recent one. It's methemoglobinemia related to local anesthetics, a summary of 242 cases from anesthesia and analgesia. And so this is from the University of Montreal, reviewed 242 published episodes of local anesthetic-associated methemoglobinemia. And the point for us, there's lots of data in here, but the point for us is that some of the stuff that we use frequently in the emergency department can produce methemoglobinemia. And the big one is the benzocaine spray. So somebody comes in, they've got something in the back of their throat, or you want to IND peritonsillar abscess, and you start spraying that benzocaine in there, you can make these people get methemoglobinemia, which is a big deal. They become relatively hypoxemic, and people die from this, and little kids have died from this. And I've actually seen a case of exactly this produced by one of our residents who sprayed it in and sprayed it in and sprayed it in, and then the person said, I don't feel right, and the person started to turn a funny ash, and it wasn't blue, it was more a grayish, funny-looking color. And we realized, holy smoke, we've just given this birth and methemoglobinemia and the treatment which is the weirdest thing and the patient was freaking out as they're turning blue 
we said, now we have to give you something blue to turn you pink. And that's like, right. The logic of that doesn't make sense to me, Doctor. This is the whole Smurf, the Smurf concept, right? These cases have been reported repetitively in emergency department setting. This guy's reporting about 250 some cases, mm-hmm. and this is not all of the cases by any stretch of imagination. And they all seem to be therapeutic misadventures. Yeah. Although I think you can get benzocaine over the counter as well. You can. So therefore, a word to the wise. But this happened in the emergency department by the doctors because they were going to try to take a foreign body out or some job like that. Well, let's ask a question. Is this because we gave, we, the emergency medicine community, gave too much of the drug? Or is it because that particular person had G6PD deficiency? I mean, there's lots of aspects And they were eating some fava beans. (laughs) And they were eating fava beans at the same time. I understand that we don't want to willy-nilly give medication. On the other hand, there are reasonable uses Absolutely. to this medication. Yeah, I'm not suggesting for a second that it's not useful or it shouldn't be used, but can occur paradoxically. Some people are more at risk for it, but also can occur just from a volume thing. And our resident had basically unloaded the entire canister and was on number two or three because <laughs> it still hurt. Just don't go crazy with the stuff. Well, the other thing is be aware if this is the reaction you're watching move immediately to the antidote. Right. Actually, it, notice and realizing what you've done is the key. Yeah, that's yes, the key, I think. I think it absolutely is. And we the assumption is if it's there to be used, it's got to be safe. And there's these repetitive cases where it says, doctor, you got a problem here. Well, alcohol's yeah. there, and we don't presume <laughs> well, that that's safe. Uh, cars you know, are presumed to be safe. Would yes. you be offended if I just reviewed briefly the pathophysiology of this condition? I love it when you do this. This is the best. He's going to well, spiel here, ladies and gentlemen. That's good. Well, hemoglobin carries your oxygen, and in fact, it carries 95% of your oxygen. It's interesting because we measure blood gases, and we measure blood gases, we only are measuring the dissolved oxygen, and that represents about 5% of what you're going to carry to your cells. So the hemoglobin is everything, and hemoglobin carries oxygen when the iron in it is for us, for us, plus two. And this is an oxidizer, and this stuff oxidizes your hemoglobin's iron to plus three, ferric. Ferric. And once it becomes ferric, it doesn't carry hemoglobin Well, that's the problem. It just doesn't hook on as easily. So your blood starts getting a little funky looking because the red cells are not carrying hemoglobin, and you have to be pretty far down the road before you see the chocolate cover, but the fact of the matter is is that you are hypoxic. You start turning grayish blue kind of thing, and you need to be aware of this phenomenon. This is a percentage deal, Rick, because yes, the more for, at 21% oxygen, you are about 98% saturated, something like that, 98 saturated, and then pretty rapidly with methemoglobinemia, now those numbers are getting down into the 50s and the 40s. I mean, it's not pretty. Typically, people who take these drugs need to take them in some kind of excessive form for them to develop this. And so this was iatrogenic kind of thing when your resident did this. But there are other things that will screw up your hemoglobin. And things that are fairly commonly available like peridium. Peridium, Peridium, that's it. And then you take your peridium and then you take your sulfur (laughs) drugs. And then you have Nathan's hot dog because, you know, you were in a good mood and you're a couple nitrated loaded hot dogs. And then you get a new pair of shoes that's got the aniline shoe dye in it. And the next thing you know, you're blue as a smurf. (laughs) You know? All right. I think the point's made here that we just need to be aware of this. And when it happens, call out the methylene blue. Number three, 
A GI cocktail can help differentiate esophageal and stomach discomfort from cardiac discomfort. Now, you know, this is such a... Wait a you second. Know, this is not even worth talking about, except for the fact... <laughs> Nobody, Rick, who listens to Risk Management Monthly is going to fall into that trap. Well, everybody knows this, but they don't act upon it. You can still differentiate. I mean, if you ask them in court, doctor, did you know this? Absolutely. Well, you seem to have acted a little differently. This is a paper by Dr. Keith Wren back in 1995. One of our friends at Vanderbilt, yes. That's where your daughter's father-in-law hung out, right? No, he was chair at Duke. Oh, same chair thing. Chair of radiology at Duke. Thing, you know. That's where they met. Oh, okay. All right. My daughter and her husband met at Duke. Or at Vanderbilt. Yeah, yeah. All right, and Keith Wren, 1995. A positive response was noted to this GI cocktail business for 68% of the patients having a discharge diagnosis of a GI disorder. Now, that doesn't mean that this diagnosis was correct, but that's what they gave them. But here's the hooker. In 73% of those patients presenting with chest pain, including 8 of 11 patients admitted with a possible myocardial infarction, they also responded. So this is almost like a flip of the coin kind of thing. And this is just a reminder, you've all heard it before, but please do not go down this path of, well, they responded to an antacid, and they had no risk factors. We did no risk factors, I think, last mm-hmm. month. Right. And so, you know, what can it be? It's got to be GI. Well, let's go the other direction, too. There's no proof that because you responded to a nitrate, that it's cardiac. Mm-hmm. And so, no matter which way you come at that, there is no pill drug, liquid, anything we can put into you which meaningfully separates out chest pain and abdominal pain, whether it's cardiac in nature or not. The location is not even good because your heart and your stomach are separated by about three millimeters, four millimeters. That's your diaphragm. That's why they call it heartburn. And I think that for anybody who listens to this program to think they're ruling somebody out with a GI cocktail, that's the disaster. Don't even call us. Just pay the money. And now let's talk more specifically about the contents of the GI cocktail. You know, there's a subtle difference, though. We give GI cocktails to make people feel better. Right. So somebody comes in and you think, yeah, this person's got reflux or an ulcer or something, and I want to make them feel better, and you give it to them, and they feel better. That's good, right? There's no reason not to do that. As long as you don't get sucked down the path of thinking... This is what they have. Exactly. That this is not my diagnostic test. If I'm worried about ischemia, here's your GI cocktail in case I'm wrong, but I'm still going to work you up for your ischemia. Right. And so now you're going to talk about what should be in the GI cocktail. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Well, tell us, Greg. Well, the GI cocktail has had everything in it that I know of. I'm sure it has monkey snot. It has (laughs) anything that people can buy. Detroit, where they ran out (laughs) of belladonna. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Parrot semen. Uh, The point is, the GI cocktail is probably, and it's been done with every conceivable thing in it. It always has as its base some type of antacid. And no matter how you cut this and look at all the various things, I don't care whether you put belladonna in it, whether you put this or that, or they always have a combination at a particular hospital. This is our GI unit, whatever it is. Nobody has shown in any of the papers that you actually get any better effect when it's done double blind from just giving the same amount of an antacid. And all you do when you put any other drug with something that we know is totally safe, is you run the risk of the side effects of that drug. So I think that all these concoctions, which people have come up with, and believe me, people stop me all the time, say, well, this is what I use. This has got to be the one. 
So do the study, publish it. We'd like to see that done. Are either of you guys aware of a paper that says that it's actually better? Well, I'm aware of a paper that says it, it right in the title, the GI cocktail is no more effective than plain liquid antacid by Dr. Berman in the Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2003, where they took 113 adults with dyspepsia and randomized them. Right. Now, one of the things that people like to use is things that they think are physiologically reasonable. So an antacid, okay, we're going to suppress the acid. That's good. Right. Belladonna, we're going to calm you down, calm right. your stomach down. You've got an upset stomach. Calm down. Right. And then we're going to throw in some of that xylocaine. We're going to numb up your stomach. We're going to calm it and numb it, and you won't know what the heck hit you by the That's time right. We're That's the monkey snot part of this stuff. And so it looks bad. It tastes bad. It's got to be well, good Well, I for think you. belladonna is supposedly tastes like minty kind of thing, you know? So mm. the idea here is you got this green cocktail specifically for the GI tract, but according to Dr. Berman and his 113 ED patients with dyspepsia, when they were randomized, there was absolutely no difference between Mylanta alone versus Mylanta, Donatol, or Donatol plus Viscosylocaine plus Mylanta, no combination. It was all the same. Mylanta was just as good. Now, I know a lot of you are not going to believe this. Because you've been using this crap mm-hmm. for like 30, 30 decades, years. Yeah, and, right. We all you know, did. And you swear by it. Right. But the fact is, if you want to shine the intense spotlight of scientific inquiry onto this, you're just practicing ritual medicine here. Right. Now, this has got nothing to do with risk management, though. This was just like a bonus little thing to annoy you, for those of you who believe that this makes a difference. This is 90% of my practice, so don't take GI <laughs> cocktails away from me, for God's sake. <laughs> So what you're just saying is simplify it, but it's nice. You get in there, it's in front of the patient, and you start to swirl it all in, and you mix the Mylanta with the lidocaine, and you do the big show, and you go, ba-boom! You, you go, know, if you actually <laughs> could, put a little apparatus in there and put in the eye of the newt <laughs> and the wing of the bat, yep. I think we'd get better results. But Make well, a bubble of, with a little CO2 yeah, coming yeah, off. Exactly. I think this whole Pepsid thing is overblown. We need to get back to eye of newt and wing of bat here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, here's another one. What about guag testing to detect blood in gastric contents? Now, this is very interesting because, again, this is something I see get done all the time. So somebody comes in, they're puking their head off, and you want to know, is that funny-looking stuff in there? Is there any blood in there? So you take the guag card, and you get a little bit of the vomit, and you drop it on the guag card, and that's positive, and you say, ta-da, GI bleed. Well, there's one paper here which is Substances that Interfere with Guaiac Card Tests, Implications for Gastric Aspirate Testing from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine from September of 89 that says, guess what, Sparky? Stop doing that. Yeah. It is completely useless. They list in here a whole bunch of things which cause false positives, a whole bunch of things that cause false negatives. And so in the end, Guaiac testing, using a Guaiac card to test gastric aspirate is absolutely and completely Useless. Well, the other thing that's useless is they say, well, I vomited yesterday. They're not producing vomit right now. Running an NG tube down their nose, thinking that you're going to get the right answer from that is painful to everyone. You don't like to do it. The nurses don't like to do it. Then they flush their stomach out. I think that I've put down in the last few years fewer NG tubes than I have in any moment of my life. I just think it's a waste of time. When they're actively GI bleeding and vomiting, you don't need much. It smells like blood. Maybe it looks like blood. But to think that that positive card separates everybody out, it's just crazy. There's just too many things, Mel, (laughs) that make that card positive. One thing I'm not sure of, there is a gastric cult yes, card. Gastric cult. And I hear that that's better, but it's still fraught with lots of problems. If you've recently eaten stuff, you can get false positives and false negatives from that card as well. But it's better than the guac card. 
but it still has false positives and false negatives. I mean, if somebody is tachycardic and hypotensive and all that sort of thing, <laughs> they've got the blood coming. Yeah, I don't care what the card <laughs> says. That's the point. I think we make a lot of decisions well, long before a card is used. I think the issue here is we're looking for the occult GI bleeder. The obvious one, the guy's got coming with blood around his lips. You don't need to do any rectal. You don't need to do any card kind <laughs> right. of thing. Yeah. But this is the person who says, I've been throwing up. And, oh, you know, it does look a little kind of brownish, you know, and you're wondering whether something's going on. I usually go down to the south end. The south end. Because, you know, what's the transit time going to be? Because blood's going to cause you to have a little increase in your transit. You move things along. And, you know, I'll give you a couple hours, and I'm going to find it at the south end. Yeah. Much more reliably than the north end. And I don't know how to break this to people, but we do have a test that answers these questions, yes and no. And unless they're in some extremists, you can set them up to be properly examined by GI. And I think that's the correct way Well, you were talking about endoscopy as being the kind of the gold standard yeah. for upper GI bleeding. Well, that takes us to paper number six, which you already kind of alluded to. It's an NG tube is an effective way to diagnose low-grade surreptitious GI bleeding. And this is one of my favorite papers. It is a little old. It's 1990 paper. It's entitled gastrointestinal tract hemorrhage, the value of NG tube aspiration. And this had 62 patients undergoing endoscopies for suspected upper GI bleeding. And the sensitivity and specificity of the physician's assessment of the GI aspirate versus endoscopic findings concerning the presence of an acute upper GI bleed, they missed 20% of the cases. So even when you put this hose down and you suck it back, because maybe the hose went down and basically came back up, and it's not down in the bottom of the stomach anywhere it was for a while, and there's nothing coming out that's interesting you. That doesn't mean that they're not having at least a low-grade upper GI bleed, according to this nice paper. The other thing that you mentioned, I didn't choose to put this in here because I think most people now don't do this, hopefully, is this idea of, well, we got to wash the clots out. Mm -hmm. Right, know? right. The last I heard, mm -hmm. you're supposed to have clots to well, stop bleeding. You know, right. it's like yeah. hosing down the sidewalk. You know, I get this analogy. Uh, excuse me a second. We all grew up thinking you had to put iced saline down there, right? That's how it was right. done. I've seen suits which say the emergency physician did not use enough iced saline. Those suits were probably from the 1940s. No, those suits have taken place since this knowledge has been out there. And I promise you, you're going to be real mad about a case I give you a little later on in this thing where a general surgeon has come to speak against an emergency physician. Mel's going to go crazy I with will. this. Please. But there was a general surgeon, a retired general surgeon, who said, well, that's what we always do. It's the standard of care to rinse them out with cold saline. And you know what? All these papers had been out by then. He was, quite frankly, behind the time. Well, you know, <laughs> when we started this thing in the 70s, it started in 1977, two years after I got out of my residency. There were papers there that really attacked this process and said, listen, cold stuff causes you to vasodilate. You put your hand in a cold bucket of water kind of thing, or the, you're looking for the Heinekens at the bottom of the tub, your hand will come out red. It's vasodilated. And you've got some capillary leakage there. So that this doesn't mean that you're going to vasoconstrict or we're going to the cold there. Well, and, the other joke is, if you believe that cold was going to constrict you, this is in the inside of a body, which means within a few minutes, the temperatures have all normalized anyway. It doesn't do anything for well, you. Well, we right? didn't want to talk about this because nobody does this anymore. That lets hope. This irrigation. <laughs> yeah. <with it. laughs> yeah. Well, it's also, you've got 
that stomach is lying right next to your heart. You know, there was these studies saying you drop that in there and they go into AFib and SVT and all bad. We've got to get this back to the risk management tip. Right. Well, the you risk know, management the, tip is very well, that, clear. Let's, Do not think that passing an NG tube and running a bunch of cold water is going to stop anybody's bleeding. If they need to have bleeding stopped, they need something through the vein. They need their Pepsid or whatever it is. They need to have a GI guy go down there and cauterize what's going on. Well, there are these risks associated with NG tubes. And we did a study a long time ago where the patients rated their most obnoxious emergency department procedure. NG tube was number one, number one on the top of the list. And, you know, everybody has their different way of doing it. Some like the tube hard, some like the tube soft, some like the tube cold, some like the tube wet kind of thing. I remember still, whenever you want something done, say it louder, louder. So the nurses are always saying, swallow, swallow, swallow. <laughs> you can hear it like all the way around the department. Somebody's getting an NG tube. Oh, God, well, this is a primitive kind of thing. Well, the other thing is you always blame the patient. So what you say is, oh, he's a damn gagger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you do that after you complain about their veins. They've right. got rollers. they got rollers, exactly. <laughs> <got> rollers and <laughs> gaggers. <laughs> You've had rollers installed yeah. just to make my life more miserable yeah, why than did already you do is. that? Okay. The next one is patients with GI or intra-abdominal bleeding can be expected to have tachycardia in the presence of hypotension. So this is another sort of myth that we're going to bust here. And this has been looked at in multiple different scenarios, whether it's GI bleeding, whether it's ectopic pregnancy, whether it's abdominal aortic aneurysm that's ruptured. It just doesn't work that way. I want it to work that way, Ricky but it doesn't work that way. Here's one article, hemorrhagic shock with paradoxical bradycardia. It's from intensive care medicine in 1987, but trust me. It's French. It's a French article. What can I tell you? It's a conspiracy. But basically what they said is that people who are bleeding a lot will often, often, in fact, some studies say more often than not, develop paradoxical bradycardia when they're really bleeding out. And this is sort of the next response that happens is called asystole, and that will stop the bleeding. So don't be fooled. Big time GI bleeding, big time bleeding in the belly, big time bleeding in the GI tract, big time bleeding from an ectopic pregnancy seems to produce some vagal response, which results in bradycardia. And so a bradycardic bleeding patient is maybe even more serious than a very tachycardic bleeding patient. So be warned. Well, Word to the wise, baby. Particularly in young women, they have 90 systolic blood pressures, not unfrequently kind of thing. If you saw that in a 40-year-old guy, you'd say, nobody has a 40-year-old guy has got a 90 blood pressure. But a young woman, maybe, yes. Mm-hmm. And then the pulse is 70. So obviously it's not in shock. They don't have this tachycardic response. And one of the theories had been that you really needed blood somewhere in the intra-abdominal cavity to trigger this kind of pathologic response. But it's actually been shown to occur with external hemorrhage as well. I think one of the theories is, at least according to what's written in this paper, is it is the speed by which you're bleeding. And if you're bleeding like massively, that this is more likely to occur. But if in fact you are bleeding over a period of time, that that's more likely to be associated with the tachycardic response, which we are all looking for. Now, I understood that particularly with the ectopics, that sort of bleeding, the peritoneal reflection, when blood is up against that, there actually is. And they've done some studies where they used other fluids in the abdomen, and definitely they can produce bradycardia with it. So I think that it may be different in different parts of the body, Rick. But here's the only thing we can take from this risk management-wise. They're not necessarily ready to go home because they have a pulse rate of 60. Is that the fair statement? You need to be aware of this entity. It will lead you down the garden path, particularly in somebody who their systolic blood pressure is not unreasonable now. 
90, 95, maybe it's 100, and their pulse is 80, and said, oh, it's obviously they're not bleeding. Wrong. Right. And it's, usually, you know, they'll reveal themselves soon after that. As Billy says, the next number after a pulse of 50 is a pulse of 30, and the next number is 10. So you need to be aware of this entity paradoxical. Don't get behind, I think, is the key. You see that person who looks like they've got a little bit of bleeding and their blood pressure is okay and they're not tachycardic, get more anxious, not less anxious. If we had to pick one which drives you crazy, and by the way, in lawsuits, this is brought up all the time. Some plaintiffs' experts say, well, they didn't take orthostatic vital signs. Mm, that drives me crazy. Orthostatic vital signs, are they a reliable way to pick up occult hemorrhage in suspected GI bleeds? Well, let's go to the paper, and the paper says it all. Orthostatic vital signs, variation with age, specificity, and sensitivity in detecting 450 ml blood loss. Basically, in this study from the University of California, Los Angeles. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Examine the relationship between orthostatic vital signs and all of these other parameters. It's Larry. This it's Larry, Larry? Barrett. Oh, my God. Larry comes to the conclusion that we take everybody, different ages, different sizes, different this, different that, and we take half a liter off of them. What do their vital signs look like? No difference. There was no predictable way when you stood them up, sat them down, laid them down, that you were going to come up with difference in the orthostatic vital signs. You know, we were all taught this, the three of us sitting around the table, everybody who's listening to this, how important orthostatics were. I guess in my career, orthostatics have not been very important. Rick, what's your opinion here? You know, there was this paper done by, I think it was done by Bob Daly, if I'm not sure, a long, long, long time ago, in the right. 70s, where they had, no, no, it was Bob Knopp, where they took medical students and drain blood off of them and did orthostatic mm -hmm. vital signs. You can only do this to dogs and to medical <laughs> students. Right. Uh, they were the closest resemblance to lab rats. Right, right, they could exactly. Find. So the idea is they took off 450 mLs, which is considered a unit of blood, and they did orthostatics, and they could not in any way find any reliable numbers that that would detect this. And this test is being used to detect occult hypovolemia. Mm -hmm. If you got the blood around your lips, we're not interested in your orthostatics. This is kind of part of the workup to say, is this person hypovolemic? Is it due to bleeding? So in any case, they then took off a liter, a second unit. Uh, and sure enough, at the end of a liter, which is hardly cold blood loss, <laughs> they were able to show that with some reasonable consistency, the orthostatics were abnormal. My favorite paper, my favorite paper on this is this one by Dr. Koiziel McLean in the Adults Emergency Medicine. This is a long time old paper, 1991. 19 years ago. This person went to the emergency department and everybody who was waiting in the emergency department who had no reason to be hypovolemic. I'm here for a sprained ankle. Are you dehydrated? No. They were all uvolemic clinically. They should have had no reason. In this study, 43% of the people in the waiting room had positive orthostatic vital signs. They also show that alcohol is associated with them, the older age is associated with them. So if you believe that this is an important differentiator to help you make the diagnosis of occult hypovolemia, you're just barking up the wrong tree. And any lawyer worth their two cents is basically going to throw this literature right in your face. Because this is just two papers. I tell you, we have 10. Yep. This paper's... I think it's Scandinavian paper that was in the database that bled people down like a liter and a half or two liters. These were inmates, volunteers, <laughs> and said, look, after you get past the liter, pretty much everybody starts to become orthostatic. <laughs> but like you said, this is not subtle at that point. Right. So I can make you drop your blood pressure consistently 
when I give you blood loss, but it is a giant amount of blood loss. Right. And in medical students, where they are completely normally hydrated, same thing. Some people's blood pressure goes down, some people goes up. It's all over the place. It's just not a test for what Rick said, occult blood loss. It's just not. More than that, I don't think it's good form to take somebody who's hypotensive, tachycardic, yeah. and stand them up. Well, you wouldn't do that anyway. You're trying to take the people who are trying to fool you. Right. But people still do that as well. But well, take a cardiac at one thirty and let's check their orthostatics. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, well, they believe what? me, they still do it, Mel. They yeah, still you need do to it. have your head examined. Now, I think there is one place where these are helpful. The older patient who's sinkable. Granddad fell out. He's 80 years old. And when you take his orthostatics and his blood sugar drops because he's on this medicine or that medicine, now you have a reasonable explanation for what made granddad pass out here. Well, we're not talking about occult hypovolemia. We're talking about the effects of a sympathetic nervous system that just doesn't respond to the changes. While we're talking about this, we need to reinforce the fact that abnormal vital signs, which are originally taken in the department, need to be answered at some point in time before the patient leaves. Are we all in agreement with that? It is still one of the things that when somebody looks at a chart, They want to know why a relatively healthy 45-year-old man left with a pulse rate of 120. That should make you really, really, really anxious. It does. It makes me anxious. Absolutely. There's at least one study in the database that says if you want to look at the people who left the immense button and died unexpectedly, one of the single most powerful predictors of that was abnormal vital signs when they left the immense button. That's right. I would think that that's one of the first things that you look at. When you're reviewing a chart in a case, I want to look at the last set of vital signs, and if they're kind of nervous and jerky, it's like, uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. Because this is a red flag, and obviously what transpired before, God knows. But when they left and they were abnormal, whether the nurse didn't tell the doctor or something to that effect, It's a setup. Now, we need to be reasonable about this. If you have a good explanation for the vital sign, that's fine. It's when you have an unexplained abnormal vital sign, that's what you have to worry about. Well, we did do a paper where they (laughs) talked about what pulse rate would you expect to have with a certain degree of fever? Because there is this thing where if your temperature is 103 and you feel comfortable that you know the reason, this guy's got a nasty strep throat, the temperature is 103, they're allowed to be a little hyperdynamic. It wouldn't be unreasonable to go out with 110 pulse and 103 fever. Right. But if you cannot have some physiologic connecting of the dots here, mm-hmm. you got to be real careful. That's exactly right. And Mel's point's the best one. When they look back at all those folks who went home and died and there was a lawsuit, the abnormal vital sign is not your friend. They're called vital signs for a reason. For baby. a reason. <laughs> yes. Life. Life. Vitus. Life. It's not Latin. I mean, that's I a little was, Latin. I had Latin in when you're, I was You're a good Catholic LaSalle, boy. You remember LaSalle that. LaSalle College, yeah. LaSalle High School. We had Latin. I know you did. I don't know whether it helped me any. <laughs> hey, well, Dominus Bobiscus. That's right. An NG tube is an important component of the treatment of pancreatitis. Well, you know, this is one of those where it's not a medical legal issue, except to the extent that NG tubes can go into lungs, can cause aspiration, can cause gagging, are unpleasant for the patients. But this idea that what we need to do is we need to suck out all of those contents there because these are the stimulus for your pancreas to secrete. But the pancreas is blocked up, ducts are swollen, they're edematous, whatever. So now they're excreting and they can't get into the duodenum, the small bowel, the ampulovitor. The ampulovitor, All this stuff starts to reflux back into the pancreas, auto-dissolving the pancreas, going to make it worse. So the idea is we're going to take out all of that stimuli for the 
pancreas to secrete by putting an NG tube down there. And these people are going to just become much, much better as a result of that. You know, there's an argument that says a foreign body in there, such as a tube, actually causes more secretion. So, Rick, let us know about this paper. This paper basically is entitled Prospective Randomized Trial of Nasogastric Suction in Patients with Acute Pancreatitis. Honestly, if you're still doing this, you know, nobody wants to do this. So it's kind of like if you're doing it, you actively believe this is important. None of the papers support that belief. Now, this is mild to moderate pancreatitis. This is not, you know, life-threatening pancreatitis or people who are having recurrent vomiting. And this is not black and white. Everybody is excluded. But in this study of 60 people with mild to moderate pancreatitis, oral intake was resumed quicker without NG suction, and hyperamylazemia and length of stay trended longer in the NG suction patients. Maybe they selected them because they were worse, but were these people randomized? Mm, Let me see here. I don't know. But in any case, there's a reasonable amount of literature. This is just one paper that says you don't need to do this and put the patient through this misery. And they assume some risk, small but real. I'll tell you the biggest problem in our place with this is the nurses look at you like, what's the matter, doctor? Everybody else puts down an NG tube for this sort of thing. And you know... It's imprinted on us. It's like duck imprinting. We do things that we learned when we were young until we're getting 10 times as much data to change what we do. If a guy comes in and tells me he's got pancreatitis, I don't want to put the tube down either. There's certainly internists I've admitted to who have been highly critical of that kind of activity, and I have to send them the damn paper. They haven't read a journal since this was 1986 then. Yeah, but understand, I have people who really predate that. And you're right, they haven't read a journal since then. We should do medicine the way theologians talk about how we should treat each other. We should do unto others as we would have them. Would any of us allow anybody to put down an NG tube? I would shoot you with a gun at close range well, if you came at me with an NG tube. We did that to each other in medical school first year. Oh, God. We well, had, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to take blood from each other, yeah, and I we had that. to put down NG oh, tubes. Oh, my God. They didn't well, do that when I was at med school, thank God. <laughs> so I went to LaSalle College in Philadelphia. Yeah. And being a brown bagger, you know, the idea was, why don't you go to medical school in Philadelphia? I had a lot of them there. Yeah. And so I interviewed at all of the medical schools in Philadelphia, except the University of Pennsylvania, which nobody could get in there. Yes. You had to have really ridiculously good grades. Right. So I went down to Jefferson Medical School there in downtown Philadelphia, and they're giving you the tour. And they said, you know, they took me to one of the labs and said, yeah, yeah, this is where we pass NG tubes on each other and draw blood. And I said, okay, thank you very much. I scratched that school right out, right out, you know, out, out, out. I'm not going there. Thank you very much. I went to Temple. I didn't ask them whether they did this or not, but I knew which schools did it. You know. <laughs> What's a brown bagger? Brown bagger. Is he lived, at, he you, lived at home. You bring your lunch from home. It's in the brown bag. Uh, I see. Yeah, right, right. You're, you're a commuting student kind Got of it. thing. Got it. Got it. All right. Number 10. Here's the myth. The height of the amylase or lipase level correlates with the severity of pancreatitis. And it turns out that it's not true. And this doesn't make any sense to me because it should be true, but it's not true. So there's lots of cases of pancreatitis, dead people with pancreatitis on autopsy and CT-proven pancreatitis. And the correlation between the rate or the absolute height of the amylase or lipase with the severity of the pancreatitis just isn't there. It's Absol- not there. That's absolutely true. And each one of us has seen somebody with near-terminal pancreatitis who the levels were only minimally elevated. And that's simply because when you kill off enough cells... You don't have enough cells left to give you 
an enzyme and they're falling off. I don't know anyone who thinks that we ought to be treating or deciding what the treatment should be. And I'll tell you what, I have seen some cases where patients were sent home with quote unquote almost normal levels and the patients themselves were in terrible shape. I think it's when you dissociate the number from the patient. We don't treat patients with pancreatitis based on those numbers. I don't think there is a good number to decide in pancreatitis. Well, you know, they have this theory here where you have to have your amylase three times normal Mm -hmm. to say, okay, this is abnormal enough to be consistent with pancreatitis. So if a normal amylase can be associated with fatal pancreatitis, and you need three times normal to make the diagnosis of pancreatitis, this is very befuddling. They're dead three times over. But this paper, which came out in 1979, and it's kind of wow, like... Wow, this is one of your first papers. Yeah, it is. It's one of these things where they're talking about people in which 40 cases of lethal autopsy-proven pancreatitis, 57% had the correct diagnosis made before death. Now, generally not the proper time to make the diagnosis <laughs> at the autopsy. Yeah. Often, abdominal discomfort was noted to be mild and significant abdominal tenderness was absent. And serum amylases was elevated in 29 of 32 when it was measured, but it showed poor correlation with the severity. As a matter of fact, amylase levels were decreased at the time of death in 6 and normal in 15. What we're going to do is tell the listeners, number one right now, this paper and a whole bunch of other papers do one thing. When that internist on the phone says, what's the number? What you have to say is, why do you care? This well, you know, it's fun sick. to say it's 15,000. Oh, I love it when it's huge. Yeah, I mean, that's cool. It's but very cool. The idea here is to be aware of this entity. This has yeah. been known since 1979 or sooner. Right. It's been around a long time. Lethal pancreatitis unrelated to the height of the amylase. So please do not go down the garden path. Say, oh, yeah, normal amylase, no problem kind yeah. of thing. Or even modestly and elevated. A lot of explanations not all make me feel good, but certainly alcoholics that have recurrent pancreatitis that are very sick protoplasm to begin with. We've had a number of deaths of pancreatitis with acute abdominal compartment syndrome where their amylase and lipase wasn't very high. Generally, I think, though, in younger people, when they have a bout of pancreatitis, their amylase tends to be high, but the height of it doesn't tell you the severity of it. That's the key thing. If you really want to know how severe it is, you either have to rip them open, which I don't suggest. Rip them? Yeah. You slice them open with a scalpel and take a look inside, or CT scanning. Yeah, CT scanning is about looking at an inflamed, swollen... And you can actually classify how bad the pancreatitis is. And if they have areas of non-perfusion, so they've got necrotic pancreatitis, they may be candidates for having antimicrobial therapy and other Mm -hmm. things which might change the course of the disease. And there's a lot of talk now about abdominal compartment syndrome, this underdiagnosed thing where they've got so much inflammation and third spacing that you want to do a bladder pressure because they might actually have to have their abdomen opened up in the ICU or in the operating room to relieve some of this pressure before they get ischemic bowel and other bad things. I think that's an interesting theory at this point in time. I certainly don't think that us checking for this pressure is the standard of care at no, this moment in time. But it's something to think about. If you've got a really tense belly, you might be want to call the surgeon down and say, take a feel of that. What do you think? Well, I think that this is all about sending people home because the numbers don't make you think they're sick enough. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I think if the person's clinically ill... If they look ill, good, they can probably go home anyway. 
But you have to be aware of this as an entity. I don't know if there's any lawsuits related to it, but this is clearly a known condition. Another known condition that we should quickly touch on is the fact that gallstones don't have to be present in cholecystitis. There's a subset of cholecystitis, a calculus cholecystitis, where there are no gallstones that you can find, but the person has the disease. And this generally occurs in sick people and diabetics and people in the ICU. So it's not usually something that walks into the emergency department, but it certainly can because there's other diseases like AIDS and vasculitis and a bunch of other diseases that can cause this. So if it looks like cholecystitis and it smells like cholecystitis and your ultrasound is negative, don't rule out cholecystitis because it still can be a calculus cholecystitis and a lot of these people do badly. So if you really want to know, probably it's still true that the gold standard is some form of nuclear scanning where they put in a little of this stuff and then you can light up your gallbladder and you can get a good look at it. CT scanning of the gallbladder is, is also actually pretty good now. So think about it, particularly in those older patients that are sick and you don't know where they're sick from. Next one is explosive, a problem, Every one of us has dealt with it. It's the concept that a normal CT pretty much rules out appendicitis. It could not be further from the truth. It all depends on the number you're looking for and how sensitive you want to be. Around this table, I think we have to conclude that with physical examination, you may be wrong. Maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 12% of the time, maybe 15% of the time, depending on when the patient is seen. But even with good CT scanning... You can be wrong 5, 7, 8% of the time, and as was pointed out in a great paper from our friends up at Cal Davis, the length of extra time to get dye into patients and do the CT scan, you know, that actually increased the number of patients they took to the table who had leaking appendix at that time. So I think that over-dependence on the CT scan is terrible. One of the cases I was going to discuss today with you gentlemen actually has to do in, we'll stick it in here right now because it's worth it. 48-year-old woman presents an emergency department with lower abdominal pain, more to the left than the right. She has a history in the past of diverticulitis. The emergency doc says clearly on the chart, no guarding, no rebound no heel pound. He did an iliosoas and an obturator internus. I mean, he did the classic examination. Say what? <laughs> I understand. Rick, it's a technical doctor thing. We'll help you with it later. But he did a great job, and he didn't do a rectal. You'd be happy about that, Rick. Sent her over for a CT scan. CT scan, and by the way, gave her oral contrast, took the two hours, yada, yada. They did the CT scan. Radiologist goes right down the list, no inflammation along the small bowel or the colon. I found essentially nothing on this thing. Now, it just so happens, the woman goes home. The next day, they reread the CAT scan. Now they say there's some inflammation in the area, the appendix, and by the time she comes back in, it is ruptured. She had multiple other medical problems including chronic atrial fib. I think she also had lupus, a few other things. And her post-operative course went badly, and she died. They've now found a retired surgeon to speak against the emergency physician, because this is in a state where you do not have to be board-certified in emergency medicine. He said, oh, it would be the standard of care for the emergency doc to actually put dye through the rectum, essentially do a rectal dye study on all patients just to make sure that she didn't have appendicitis. 
Have you ever heard crap like this before in your life? No. And by the way, he is a member of the American College of Surgeons. I mean, I'm strongly considering taking him to be spanked by their ethics committee. This kind of stuff hasn't been done in years. And the emergency doc diagnosed her as possibly early diverticulitis again. She has that history. Started her on an antibiotic, the appropriate antibiotics, sent her home, told her to be re-examined at her doctor's the next morning. I mean, this is as good a job as I think I you can do. Why would a lawyer even take this? Surely they're going to lose this case. Well, you know what? You never know, because this is theater noir, and depends on who they listen. And by the way, they're going to say, this is Dr. So-and-so, general surgeon. He ought to know. know. Yeah, I'm just telling you, this crap goes on all the time. So all of you out there in radio land who are listening to this, just understand there are people out there who are not your friend. Speaking of CTs and appendicitis, one of the two lectures we're doing in the course, in fact, one of them is tomorrow morning, is about CT, appendicitis, ultrasound, radiation, who gets benefit, who does not get benefit, those kinds of things. And you have to acknowledge that these tests are not perfect. There's a whole bunch of studies on this. It's probably in the neighborhood 5%. Five percent. One seven, out of right. 20, one out of 20, is they say it's okay and it's not. But I think that there's a bias that says the study is more likely to be correct in my opinion. And I think that that's really a mistake because Whenever you have two elements of evidence, one says yes and one says no, you need a tiebreaker. You need some other kind of thing. And in this case, when you think that the person clearly has it, but the CT is negative, you need to have a surgeon come in and take a look at these people. You just can't say, well, the test must be right. I guess I'm wrong kind of thing, because you're going to make the same mistake in all of these missed appendicitis cases where, <laughs> in fact, the CT was done and it was falsely wrong. Rick, <laughs> I have to disagree. Ah, uh, having a... Yeah, the tiebreaker is calling in the surgeon. Yeah, I was going to say this. Give me a break. I look at more bellies every day than they do. Tell me what they know about feeling the belly that I don't know. What you've said is correct medically, legally. You've now transferred the responsibility. But as an emergency doc, as a board-certified emergency doc, I'm not happy to hear that they have some skill level that I don't have. Yes, they do. They have the ability to admit a patient to the hospital, and you don't have those privileges, doctor. That's correct. Yeah, that's all right. So if they want to admit the patient, thank you. Yeah. If they want to send the patient home, I still think you've got to follow them up in six hours, eight hours, and do something again. That's the point, that we can't go, and I think some of the young surgeons these days, they don't want to operate without a CT scan. Give me an old guy who did it for years without the CT scan, and does it clinically, feels the belly and operates. One of the papers we're doing tomorrow looks at clinical stratification, and the patients who obviously had appendicitis on clinical assessment, in this one study, not a lot of them got CTs, because what the heck are you going to do if it comes back negative, and you're so compellingly sure that clinically it's appendicitis, Somebody's going to operate on those. So why bother doing a CT in those cases? That's my feeling. That we do way too many CTs. It's happening, though. Yes. In our residencies, in the surgeons that are coming through, it's just this compulsion to get a CT even when it's clinically obvious. And well, particularly with kids. I they ju- blame us. They say, oh, we're ordering them. We say, no, it's you, and it's a big nightmare. Yeah, I'll tell you, at our place, if you're a kid... We're not going to do a CT. I'll send you over to the university because they got a guy there who does ultrasound who's very good at it. If you want a test, we'll do that one. If the kid's clinically obviously got some peritonitis, I think he or she needs an operation. And I don't know why we're so afraid to operate anymore. Well, the short version of tomorrow's lecture is 
we ought to do a lot more ultrasounds than we are, yet the data suggests that we're doing fewer ultrasounds because we have this modality here. And I think that the Europeans have much more experience at doing ultrasounds for much more confidence, and we need to get that same level of confidence. And the way you do it is saying, do a lot of do the ultrasound first. We're going to help you learn to read ultrasounds, doctor, because we're going to be ordering a lot more of them. And then there's a strategy. You could cut down the number of CTs by probably 60 or 70%, because if the ultrasound is abnormal, done, you're done. Clinically, they have it. The ultrasound is abnormal. You don't need to go to the CT. So that strategy, which appears to be like a belt and suspenders, you're going to be ordering a lot of expensive tests here. Yeah, the test that really ought to be done and gotten good at is an ultrasound, not undue dependence on CTs. Number 13. This has to do with the white blood count is helpful in the diagnosis of appendicitis. Oh, my God. Do we have to go through this again? No, we don't, honestly. <laughs> yeah. we really don't. Well, no, Rick, if from the science standpoint, everybody knows the answer. The white blood count is the last refuge of the intellectually destitute. We all know that. But I've heard this 50 times or 60 times or 70 times in court. Well, doctor, they had an elevated white blood count. I mean, everything elevates your white blood count. If you don't think you're not going to hear that in court, you're just wrong. It happens all the time. Yep. White counts are useless, and yet we yeah, still do. Yeah, I think we should be getting sed rates and procalcitonin <laughs> levels. <laughs> yeah, that'll oh, procalcitonin, one of my favorites. The next myth is the diagnosis of PID is reliably made on clinical examination. I don't think we need to spend too much time on this, but here's an article from January of 2009, pretty recent, of women who had gone to the OR, who'd had steel placed through their belly. They were actually looking at their PID organs, and they said, how good was the clinical exam for diagnosing this disease? And this is just another article that says, be afraid, be very afraid, that the clinical features of PID, the physical examination features of PID are very nonspecific. They're varied. This is a tough diagnosis to make. I've got to believe, Greg, that this therefore is something that comes up frequently, missed PID. Is this true? Because clinically, very difficult to diagnose. A very rare case as far as medical legal cases go. Let me tell you what does happen, however, is a doctor, perhaps not as well trained as he should be, who diagnoses unilateral PID. I don't know how that disease can even exist, but I've seen that in four or five missed appendix cases where they went in, moved the cervix, pain on one side, said, well, because there was cervical motion tenderness, it must be an infectious disease in the uterus. And I think that the number of cases of that are dropping. I think that we don't see much of that anymore. And I, I'll tell you what I think has really saved that is the ultrasound and the fact that whether we like it or not, when they make that diagnosis of unilateral PID, somebody has got to grab them and shake them. They make they do that once, but you don't do that twice. Well, this paper points out, I think, that the diagnosis is frequently wrong, and the diagnosis that is often correct is endometriosis, appendicitis, diverticulitis, yes. oligodices. Itises yeah. is, is, the itis. So it sort of becomes this grag bag, throwaway box of a diagnosis. And so we always teach our residents when you're making the diagnosis of PID, realize that you're probably wrong. So it's either nothing and it's going to go away or you've just missed a nappy. You've just missed something else bad. So think twice before you write that on the chart. And by the way, we always associate that with, well, is it gonococcus, that sort of thing. The Scandinavians did a study, which is in the database, I think. Every reasonable study Every, is in, in the database where they actually aspirated fluid there to and cultured it out. 
And believe me, it's not all gonorrhea. There are other things that exist there. Oh, you get all kinds of gram negatives and tubo a fusiliformly anaerobic ease. In Clostridia. It, in this study, they only found gonorrhea 27% of the time. Nine. They found chlamydia twice as often. They right. found other things. So, Right. Yeah. Could be. But this it, is a Lithuanian study, and you don't know whether it's extrapolatable. This may be just humans? limited to Lithuanians, which are like, <laughs> like Ukrainians. You know. We'll have Mel run the study and see what he finds. <laughs> the day after tomorrow, there is a lecture we're doing here, a 30 minutes on... All of the data that supports this idea that the clinical diagnosis of PID is often wrong. Not always wrong, but often wrong. And that when it is wrong, you have to be concerned about these other kinds of things. And it's interesting because they say, well, what is the gold standard for making this diagnosis? And all the papers looked at laparoscopy, which is never being done anymore Mm -hmm. as the gold standard by which it's done. Because I don't know that a CAT scan is going to tell you, only unless you had a tubal ovarian abscess are you going to have some abnormalities on that. So the idea here is we're doing less and less of the gold standard test, which would suggest that we're going to be even making this diagnosis more and more incorrectly. Let me give you a little medical legal insight on this one when it comes to the question of if you've made the diagnosis of PID, in some young woman and everything fits and that's what she's got we actually have some lawsuits about treating them as inpatients as opposed to outpatients we've been a little casual about this diagnosis and if not aggressively treated you've actually lowered their fertility levels if they're tremendously inflamed by probably up to 50 percent in some series And, you know, some young woman may want to get pregnant someday. So why do we take this disease, which is, you know, essentially a form of early peritonitis with active inflammation in the tubes, why do we treat that less seriously than we would other infectious diseases in the body? I think young people looking ill ought to be admitted to the hospital and aggressively treated for PID. Although there are these guidelines for people who can be treated as outpatients. So you you don't want to imply a standard of care here. No, what I'm saying is be reasonable here. Look at the guidelines. Don't take this too casually. And you know, there are certain people who are labeled in emergency departments, drug seekers, headache patients. I think PID patients are occasionally labeled. And I think that that's not right. All right, moving on. Number 15. Yes. Epididymitis can consistently be distinguished from testicular torsion in children is the myth here. And there are multiple studies in the literature affirming that just how elusive this diagnosis can be and the unreliability of clinical imaging, which is frequently done. I get the blood flow. You see the blood flow down there. That's good kind of thing. And that that can lead you down the garden path. This is one of the cases where you know, there are not a lot of urologic emergencies. The urologist is not going to go nuts if you give him a call and say, I think I got a unilateral painful testis or scrotum. Would you help me out here? Because the idea here is like time is testicle and some people have advised that the way you make this diagnosis is doing surgery. I mean, what's the idea of putting a little hole through the scrotum kind of thing? Nobody will ever notice it. The kid, like, you can see like you know, some wrinkles. Your wrinkles are lining <laughs> it's up. It's cosmetic. Dude, right? you have a wrinkly scrotum. Have you had surgery? Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know. In the San Fernando Valley, that may be a problem. <laughs> so the it idea of calling a urologist and having a low threshold rather than trying to ferret this out yourself is, you know, the recurring advice that you see people have. Well, the other thing is most young guys, there are very few things it's going to be, and you don't see it that often. Probably in the last two years, I've picked up two testicular torsions. But I agree with you, and that is a painful testicle in a young person 
needs consultation with the urologist. You can do those tests, but make sure you make the call to the urologist. Right, Because they're going to probably want to come in and see them. Actually, if it really looks like a duck and squawks like a duck, I call them up and say, do you really need a test, or would you you like to take them to the operator? But you see these guys making an excuse. I think I probably banged it. They always want to create mm-hmm. some causality. It's going to lead you down the garden path. He didn't bang it kind of thing. It's painful mm-hmm. because of this other process. Well, I don't want to see a diagnosis of epididymitis on a four-year-old. Is that a sexually active four-year-old we're talking about? He's got a big prostate. It's gram negatives from his big prostate. Well, it, it, who knows what it is. <laughs> Although, you know, I, Greg, I've told you this many times before. I have a problem with this diagnosis as being a source of lawsuits. Because I don't see any damages. And isn't having damages one of the things that you're supposed to have? (laughs) Rick. Greg, I'm telling you, I don't see the damages. I know you don't, but you're a smart guy and a science guy. When you present this to a jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he's now half a man. You know. (laughs) (laughs) All I can tell you is... Nobody knows exactly what the price of a testicle is, and it all depends on whether it's mine or yours. Yeah, well, that's some good eating, though. Yeah, yeah is whether well, it's you know, free. it's like, <laughs> all right, I tell you, I'll pay you the money when you can't get somebody pregnant. That's when the damages appear apparent. Yeah. Unfortunately, the legal system doesn't look at things logically. Rick. Like, it's like an IOU. I understand. <laughs> that's right. I understand. Uh, okay. 16, kidney stones, age 50. That's common. Well, <laughs> if you think that, you know, we then call you the defendant, doctor. <laughs> yep. Well, they also point out in this paper that we did, hematuria associated with ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. The real setup is you got this pain, came on suddenly, and sure enough, that doctor did that dipstick test, and there's the blood. You know, you got a kidney stone, buddy. Proof that God hates emergency <laughs> physicians right here. Yes. Absolute proof right here. Right. We'll really screw them You've up. You've got a dull pain, and it's often flank pain, and there's blood in your urine. It's got to be renal colic in this paper, and our experience is, <laughs> no, it's not. Psych. Yep. They're rupturing. And I had one of these cases when I was an intern that I'll never forget. You always have those cases you will never forget. They'll dig up my cortex a thousand years from now, and it'll still be imprinted on there. <laughs> he was a 60-year-old guy came in, flank pain, down into his penis, dip his urine, positive for blood, and I get rid of his pain, and I write the discharge summary, and as he's getting off the gurney, he has a syncopal episode, and the senior registrar comes in the room and goes, what are you doing with this guy with the triple A? I'm like, how did you know it's a triple A? He's like, 65-year-old black pain now lying on the floor, it's a triple Sure enough, he had a triple A. But everything said renal colic except his age. And your experience. And my experience at the time was zero. I've never made that mistake again. (laughs) You know, it is true that if you look at all the lawsuits, old folks with a new onset of low back pain that they didn't have before, there's no good reason by a 63-year-old guy, mildly hypertensive, smokes, has not complained of back pain before. When I hear that story, I don't like that story. That story's not right. You can extrapolate that. Diane Birnbaumer has this lecture on abdominal pain in the elderly. There's nothing good happening in those people's bellies. Exactly right. right. If you're old and your belly hurts, it's bad. It's not gastroenteritis. It's not the stomach flu. Please. No. It doesn't even exist. The term I do not want to see or have to defend is constipation. 
you know what? Everybody's got shit in there. That's and, where they keep it. That's where they keep it. That's Neil <laughs> Little's comment. Yeah, it's a great it's where I store it, that's doctor. That's where I keep it. And I think that the fact that we're too casual with the diagnosis of constipation, there's something else wrong. And our last tip is... Abdominal pain out of proportion to physical findings is consistent with malingering. No. If you have somebody who comes in with pain out of proportion to signs, whether it be in the belly, the arm, the cellulitis, whatever it is, pain out of proportion to signs, your first thought should not be, this patient's full of crap, this patient's malingering, this patient's trying to get these drugs out of me. Your first thought should be, something horrible is going on here. Pain out of proportion to signs in the belly, the classic thing we think about is mesenteric ischemia, old patient, atrial fibrillation, flick to clot. They've got horrible pain as their bowel starts to die, but they've got very few physical findings yet. Although yeah. will come, but they will be 12 yeah. Here's hours Here's the key the in that one, is that even when we're thinking about mesenteric problems, it's a very difficult diagnosis to make. Not simple. And what exactly is the treatment again? I mean, I understand if they're in fib, you can do something about fib, perhaps. But when they've thrown something to the mesentery, the therapy is extremely difficult. Well, I don't know what the therapy is, but I just don't want to have people miss this by <laughs> right. saying this person, because you implied some bad words, Melvis, like malingerer. Mm. But there's another term, which is not nearly as bad, called a symptom magnifier. These people are overreacting according to your threshold of what they should be acting like. They are kind of... Hypochondriacs. Yes, Wimps. Exactly. Come on. Get Suck a stiff, up. stiff upper lip, uh, chap. Yep. You yep. know, those kinds of things. So you have to be careful. There are other things, and you did mention, you alluded to them. Like, what is that thing where they get the... the Necrotizing fasciitis yeah, is a go. classic one. There right. you go. And they even have La Belle in de France as they're slowly dying. Their brain just turns off, and they initially can have horrible pain with a little bit of cellulitis, and that's bad. But then later on, all the pain goes away, and they get this indifferent sort of stare to them. It's Whenever I read the bad. lawsuits about necrotizing fasciitis, all I can say is, thank you, God, that they didn't come in when I was on, because we could have passed on those without any problem at all. Yeah. All right, so those are our 18 little tips about to try to keep you out of trouble with people who have abdominal issues. I wanted to bring to your attention one article. I think that this may be a landmark article. People talk about, well, what cost does malpractice have in terms of health care? Is it adding on a lot of additional tests, da, 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 more consults, those kinds of things? And this paper was published in Health Economics, which is a hoity-toity journal. And it's entitled Malpractice Litigation and Medical Costs in the United States. To their knowledge, these authors say this is the first study of its kind that attempts to correlate the relationship between medical costs and the frequency and magnitude of malpractice litigation. And when you get this paper, if you're at all interested in this topic, you must get this paper. But when you get it, you will see the most technical paper you've ever seen in your entire life in terms of equations and charts and graphs. This thing is like unbelievable that people would have any understanding of this stuff. Well, this is part of somebody's PhD dissertation, and I was impressed. But anyway, there is a conclusion, and this is a national study, very well done. And the bottom line is that they concluded that between 2 and 10% of medical expenditures is related to malpractice, which is a combination of malpractice costs and defensive medicine costs. And of this amount, malpractice settlements accounted for only 0.3%. So 0.3% is what the insurance company paid the total costs, 
and much of this is paid by patients through their health insurance, is they said somewhere between 2 and 10%. And I don't think anybody's put a number on this before and a number that they think they can defend very yeah, well. Here's the problem with this paper, Rick. It tries to use equations to look at something which is a very personal event. This is a PhD kind of experience. I think that study may have been different if it had been run by emergency docs. Do you honestly believe that it's only 2% or even up to 10% of the ordering of tests is due to the fear of malpractice? I think that number could be 35%. Well, 30, I think it, it could be 50% or more. Well, yeah. yes, but that's only one part of medicine, right. ordering of tests. This yep. is the total cost, yep. 2 to 10%. Total cost. Yes, test may be 20% higher, but other things, it doesn't affect it. So, and I do think, honestly, I think Greg, you see this paper because I think it is extraordinarily well done. The whole goal of this is to get an answer that has never been really derived before so that you can't get this answer in a casual way. You may have to come up with a really defendable answer. And I think these guys think their answer is very well, defendable. If it's that complicated, there's probably only a handful of people that can really look at the methodology and say oh, it's yeah, good or not. Exactly. But this may be the number that Obama keeps bringing up. And I'm an Obama fan and he's my guy. But when he says that 2% of the healthcare budget it relates to medical malpractice, I want to reach in there and slap him upside the head because I don't believe that for a second. But that's the number. They're saying 2 to 12%. Maybe he spoke to these guys, but I don't believe it. I think that medical malpractice, the fear of medical malpractice, drives our healthcare system to a far greater extent than this. By the way, the range of 2 to 12%... 2 to 10. Is 2 to 10. That's huge. That's a five times variance. Mm -hmm. But so it isn't 30 well, so everybody wants to beat their chest and saying, once we fix this problem, we're sailing. I don't think that's true at all. Yeah, I think that, however, if you looked at emergency medicine, that part of the equation, it's a higher percentage. I just I, can't. I, I would agree with that. Well, yeah. here's an example. So let's say we got rid of all the lawyers and we went to some New Zealand system, something like that. We know that most healthcare expenditure occurs in those last few months of life. If we could say 60% no. in the last 90 days. Grandma, no. No ICU, none of this stuff. We could slash the healthcare budget. Why don't we do it right now? Partially it's because we really do believe that maybe grandmother has another 20 years. I don't know how many physicians really believe that under those circumstances. But I think we do most of that stuff because we're afraid. We're afraid the families are going to go after us. Instead of rationally saying, grandma is old, it's time to put her under a tree. And if she gets better, great. And if she dies, we'll keep her comfortable. Okay, let's get to some letters. Brady Pregerson from Los Angeles says, I think I'd like to become the medical director of a small ambulance company and critical care transport company. What do I need to know about my liability here? Well, Brady, first thing is, I bet you also like to be beaten by malignant dwarfs. I mean, I can't <laughs> picture why you want to do this. But if you do, the first thing I would say is you're now in a management responsible area. You need to have somebody covering your potential liability. If you're going to take this job, make sure that somebody is paying for the policy. It may not be what you do in the field, but you could possibly be sued for protocols, for policies. Those sorts of things have been sued on in the past. So as far as I'm concerned, the first person you protect is yourself. Make sure somebody's got a policy for you. 
I think that the risks are pretty small, but I've seen the opportunity to screw up in terms of EMTs and paramedics. They have to have a current license. It's just like doctors. You become invalid as a practitioner of medicine when the day your license expires, and they don't want to hear about, well, it's the same doctor who was yesterday kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, you know, I understand. Not, he didn't have his mind wiped clean. But the fact is, is that you do have to have these certificates. And the other thing is, and this has come up in my own personal experience, you've got to make sure that there's a really tight control for controlled substances. Because if you're going to be the doctor whose name's on those prescriptions going out, getting the refills, yep. they will hold you personally responsible for any screw-ups that occur as a result of pilfering of drugs. You don't even think that that's a likelihood of happening, but I can tell you it does happen. So the idea is obviously you need some kind of coverage. It's tough because we're not used to coverage for these non-medical processes. I mean, you have to read it. You have no expertise at it. You know, is this a good policy or not? I don't well, know. I, th- I think the real answer, the answer here, Rick, is you've now moved out of the clinical practice of medicine to a managerial or a leadership post, everybody else who works for companies, profits, nonprofits, that sort of thing, has somebody carry their liability insurance. By the way, a lot of very good organizations are having a lot of trouble getting people to sit on their boards because they're afraid of liability. Let me give you an example. The Boy Scouts of America, that sounds like a nice organization. Well, you know, (laughs) one of them, the board was sued based on the question of was there a sexual molestation of a boy in a Boy Scout troop. You think that that went anywhere as far as encouraging people to serve on these boards? So they get something called Directors and Officers Insurance. Because if I'm going to spend my time doing something, I do not want to put my family and my assets at risk. And you know what? I don't see the reason why we should do that. Okay, Chris Lyons writes, he was told that an AMA sign-out may result in a patient's insurance not covering the visit, and on top of it, the forms really don't protect us all that well anyway. Should we just do a good job of a documentation in the chart and skip the unfriendly form? Well, the form is nothing. It's the process you went through in the chart. But this not paying for against medical advice, I honestly believe that that's a very rare event in the country. Our group has never had that happen. They pay for that. Secondly, it needs to be absolutely clear from that chart that you gave advice which the patient did not want to take. I mean, that's what the chart is all about. And again, no good deed goes unpunished here. You think you're protecting the patient from collection agents and all that other sort of stuff. You know, forget that. The first thing you need to do is make sure that that chart conveys you wanted to help that patient. So is this form, is it an additive protection? I mean, you're saying the most important thing is writing the chart. Like, I talked to the patient, here's what I thought we should do. They said, no, I came up with my next best plan, and I wrote it on the chart. But is the ability to waive an AMA form to the jury more protective than not having an AMA form to waive at the jury? It certainly seems to help. At least it shows you've gone through the paper process as well as the intellectual process of what's going on. And I think a lot of attorneys would be loathe to take a case, the form itself does not protect you if you haven't gone through the various stages, which we've gone over many times. The most important one is the capacity of the patient to make a rational decision. But to have the extra added attraction of a form is not a bad thing. The best form I've ever seen, again, is the one that Jim Roberts has in Well, you haven't seen mine. 
<laughs> I think I have a great AMA form. Yeah. That's the one that says, get out of here and never come back again. I was of the opinion that it is good to have the form and that the, yeah. the implication that these forms are unfriendly. I'm not agreeing to that assertion one bit. I think these forms can be very friendly. And I think that the idea that this person has signed and it says black and white, here are what we believe the consequences of your actions may be. It's going to be a terrific support. You can make the chart very self-serving and in terms of your documentation. But the fact of the matter is, is that this form says, here's a spot that says what can go wrong. Here's a spot that says your wife understood this conversation as well. Here's a spot that said the nurse that accompanied you understood that what was being said. And here's your signature. So I think the idea of just doing this by writing in the chart some kind of unfocused note is just it's not in your best interest. Yep. I think you need to go down through the process. One, two, three, four, five. If you can do all of that without having a form or something to go with, that's fine. But I agree with Rick that there's nothing like that piece of paper. The other thing is at the bottom, it needs to say in big letters, we'll see you back at any time. You have a perfect right. Come on back in. We want to see you back if there's any problem. So that's what I mean. This form can be very friendly, actually. It could be. Just understand that half the people who leave against medical advice won't even sign the form. They stop out mad, that sort of thing. But I think it's good. Well, gentlemen, are we at the end of the operation here? I think it's time for Wine of the Month. Wine of the Month. For Wine of the Month this month, we're going to one of our listeners, Charlie Evans. Now, Charlie, if you don't know him lives in Sonoma County. Uh, He He lives in the middle of the wine country. I've been to his group. I've been to his house. This guy's got it pretty knocked in the wine country of California. And it's his recommendation that we should branch out and try a McMurray Ranch Pinot Noir. Now, I will admit right now to everyone listening, I haven't bought a bottle yet. I intend to. And, Charlie, we want to thank you for sending in this suggestion from the heart of America's wine country. I've got a quick question for you on Wine of the Month. Yes. There's this move right now to go away from corks to screw tops. Yes. Is there really a difference between the cork and the screw top? Well, we sold a bill of goods, and now they're trying to resell us a bill of goods? Well, it's not a bill of goods. It's a tradition. There's no question that the French wine industry, just like the wine industry in this country, is going away from a cork cork. We're talking about the stopper mechanism. They're all going to a new composite. There's no question that it's better than the cork. And at least the Germans and the French believe, with even their expensive white wines, they now do them in screw tops. So any Green Springs gets her revenge, I guess, is what it says. Is a screw top without a cork? Screw top without a cork, but it's got a pressure seal on the inside. I'll and what be they're darned. and what they're saying is this is as good or better than mm-hmm. putting a stopper in the bottle. So I know that all of the listen, I got a wine cellar full of things with corks in them which are deteriorating. This may be the way to go. I thank you for bringing that issue up, but I'll tell you right now, you go, in, to me. you go to the great wine shops and you look at these fancy German white wines, that sort of stuff. All with screw tops. I love it because I can get into it faster. (laughs) (laughs) Boom, I'm off. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, the March 2010 issue of Risk Management Monthly. We'll talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye-bye.